Welcome to Earth Matters, environment and social justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced in the studios of 3CR on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Judith Peppard. Today on Earth Matters, we're looking at kelp forests, the vital marine ecosystems found along the coastlines of temperate regions of the world in cool waters. They're among the planet's most biodiverse ecosystems, but they're in trouble. Within the last decade, 96% of the kelp forests on California's north coast have disappeared. What we're seeing is a massive die-off of kelp, either through climate change, pollution, and overfishing of predators. Today on Earth Matters, a researcher and an artist tell us about their work to draw attention to the plight of the world's disappearing kelp forests. And while they work in different ways, they have in common a love of nature that began when they were children. Aaron Eager is a marine scientist from the west coast of Canada and a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. He's currently working on consolidating information about the best way to restore our underwater forests, or kelp beds. I grew up on the west coast of British Columbia, very close to the ocean, maybe 10-minute walk from our house. And the ocean can be quite a welcoming but kind of forbidding place back home. You know, the water is 8, 10 degrees, there's quite a bit of swell, rocky coves, rocky beaches, but something connected in me there and just sort of as I started to explore life, I returned to the ocean over and over again. Aaron Iga. Deborah Weiss is a botanical artist, fabric designer, professional printmaker and ecological activist from Tasmania. I had such an interest in form and function of plants. As a child, I started this huge collection of shoeboxes, divided and divided again, and, you know, holding different sizes and shapes of gumnuts and leaves, and I loved it as a child. Deborah Weiss, and we'll hear more from Deborah later in the show. But first, to Gadigal country. I caught up with Erin Eger on a warm day on the lawns of the University of New South Wales campus, with city sounds and the occasional bird in the background and began by asking him to tell me more about where kelp forests are found. If you live in London, or if you live in Tokyo, or in Sydney, or in Vancouver, or New York, or Santiago, or Seoul, or Cape Town, you have a kelp forest on your doorstep. And so few people are aware of that, and really, again, stresses that point about how widespread, how important these are, but how little information we currently have, and the potential to change that. A lot of people haven't even seen much of one. Just this in itself is an issue, would you say? Absolutely. And you can break it down into, a, I guess, a brain problem and a heart problem. From the brain perspective, not having enough information can stop us from managing these forests really effectively. So we don't have a lot of understanding of how to grow kelp and to transplant it and to restore it in places that it's been lost. And so we really need to increase that capacity so we can actually bring these systems back after they've been lost or destroyed. And then from the heart perspective, if people aren't aware of them or they aren't connected to them or they don't really understand why kelp connects to their life, then there's just this lack of willingness or emotion to actually do something about the problem. With the work that we do with the Kelp Forest Alliance, we are trying to address those two problems together, 
We're trying to provide extra technical expertise so people can do kelp conservation better and more efficiently. And we're also trying to build a sort of movement and awareness behind kelp forests so that when you say the word kelp, people don't look at you puzzled or think about the thing that washed up on the beach, but they think about the system that is supporting life all across our polar and temperate seas. And you have mentioned some cities, but just how widespread are they? So the latest estimate for the distribution of kelp forests is about 38% of the world's coastline, and that makes them the largest biological marine habitat. Bigger than seagrass, bigger than coral reef, bigger than mangroves. They're, They're just spread really from about 30 degrees north and south up towards the poles. You even have kelp forests under sea ice in a lot of places in the north. They're really dynamic and adaptable species. They can grow in all sorts of environments and conditions and they can be tiny little shrubs to giant towering forests over 30 meters tall. And so they they just sort of find their way in these environments all across our, our planet. Sounds to me like I'd have to be underwater to really appreciate the magnitude of them. So if I were underwater, say, in the Great Australian Bight, and if I were in a kelp forest, what would it feel like? You get this experience first of floating through this big, complex structure, and then you get biodiversity animals sort of beyond belief. If you walk through a forest, you might be happy to spot a few birds in 20 minutes. If you go swimming in a kelp forest, you'll see thousands and thousands of fish lobsters, crabs, sea stars, creatures of all imagination just almost at your fingertips. And it's truly mind-blowing when you start to experience the, the complexity and the diversity of life that lives in these underwater forests. All around the world, we have a, a general decline of kelp forests. So on, on average, the best estimate is that we're losing about 15 to 1.8% of kelp distribution per year globally, but that varies a lot region by region. So some places have been absolutely decimated. Tasmania, for instance, has lost about 95% of its giant kelp forest population. Northern California has lost about 90% of its bull kelp population. The west coast of Australia has seen about a thousand kilometers of coastline that used to have a kelp forest just disappear. But then you have other regions, Scotland, South Africa, Patagonia, and there the kelp forests are doing quite well and these tend to be the more remote places the colder places they aren't as affected by water pollution or industrialization or warming sea temperatures because they're just a bit closer to the poles so what's happening for them globally is there very much going on to look after and protect them especially those areas that we've lost them until recently there wasn't really any one sort of global initiative to protect or restore kelp forests that's the problem we're trying to address with the kelp forest challenge. So that's a call to protect 3 million hectares of kelp forest and restore an additional 1 million hectares of kelp forest by 2040. And with that, we're targeting the governments of the world, the big environmental not-for-profits, the intergovernmental groups, to step up and make these pledges to protect and restore our kelp forests. They have commitments through existing international treaties that have been recently signed to protect and restore our natural environment. With the Kelp Forest Challenge, we're making sure that, that kelp forests aren't missed in this opportunity. Aaron Eager from the University of New South Wales. And if you want to find out more about the Kelp Forest Alliance and the Kelp Forest Challenge, and you might even want to join, just Google those words and you can get all the information. 
Now, to bring home the importance of kelp forests, Aaron has collaborated with colleagues around the world to determine the monetary value. It was a huge task. I asked Aaron why he felt it was important. You can get lost in the Latin names and the units and all these sort of things, but with the dollar value, you just have that really concrete, everyday unit uh, for people to sort of connect with. And, and, you know, the exact value is $500 billion of value per year, but not everyone's going to remember that. But what they will remember is that's a very big value, and that's very important. And there's this system that's been almost entirely forgotten that has that big value. So maybe we should do something about that. Maybe now, with that sort of attention shone on it, we can do better in the future. How did you start? One foot after the other, I think. We were, again, just assessing what needed to be done, where the gaps were, and this was a big gap. I've always liked a a collaborative approach to the sort of research that I'm involved in. Just started looking around the world, seeing who was working where, and getting a, a big global team of people who had information on kelp biodiversity or the growth rates of kelp forests, as well as some market information about the the dollar values behind those. So as we got this big global team together in really every region that has a kelp forest providing the information that we needed, we started to think about, all right, what are we going to value about a kelp forest? Because there's a number of different things that, that kelp forests can do for society. As you think about how to put a dollar value on those, some of them are just a bit easier than others because they have existing market rates straightforward. But you try to put a dollar value on somebody's appreciation of a kelp as they go for a snorkel or a piece of artwork that was created around a a piece of kelp, that's a lot more difficult. So since we were taking this economic lens, we decided to focus on the services or the benefits that had those direct market values, the fisheries value, the carbon sequestration value, and the water purity value, so how much water pollution is pulled out of the environment. And then after that, you then ask, all right, what do we mean by kelp? Because kelp is actually quite a big group. There's uh, 33 genera that are true kelps and almost 100 genera that fall into sort of pseudo kelps. When you're doing these sort of big global analyses, you need a lot of data. So we decided to focus on the sort of most widely distributed genera of kelp forests or groups of kelp forests. So when we were picking which species to study or which groups of kelp to study, we decided to pick the ones where we could find a lot of information and the ones that were really the most important across that distribution. And so while we didn't capture every group of kelp, we've captured the whole distribution of kelp forests. The groups that we studied occur across the whole range where you would find a kelp. They're the most important ones in those regions. You found they were valued at uh, US 500 billion per year. How did that break down? The most economically valuable service was the removal of nitrogen from the water. So excess nitrogen flows into the ocean from agriculture or sewage or other industrial processes. And when it does that, it can stimulate algal growth, microscopic plant growth. And if that happens in really quick succession, there's too much biomass in the water and when it dies it starts to decompose or rot and that process actually requires oxygen so when it does that there's just just giant lump of biomass that's rotting and sucking up oxygen and you create these huge dead zones really where there's no oxygen left in the water and it can't support life so that's a major problem but kelp need that same nitrogen for growth so when they grow they pull that nitrogen out of the water and store it in their tissues until they themselves die and break down and get transported away in the waves. That was the most valuable one because it's so expensive to 
remedy nitrogen at the moment. And second, close to that, was the provisioning of fisheries or the, the sort of habitat that's provided for species that we like to eat or collect. And so you have some really prized fisheries around the world that are supported by kelp forests. You have abalone, you have lobsters of different varieties, you've got cod, other big sport fish, sea cucumbers, that all have really high economic value, but also cultural value to people that live in these regions and harvest them and eat them and rely on them. And we tried to account for a sustainable harvest of these species. So we didn't value all the kelp forest biomass or the animals living in the kelp forest biomass. We looked at, all right, what would a sustainable harvest rate be? And what is the value of that to ensure that they could do that harvest year after year after year and not just crash the population by taking out a big swath of biomass in the first year and making, quote unquote, a lot of money off that. Uh, but what can be sustainable? And lastly, we looked at the carbon sequestration value of kelp forests. And interestingly, it wasn't that high from the, the sort of total perspective. We did find that kelp forests kind of pound for pound are better than or comparable to other ecosystems for carbon sequestration. So land-based forests, mangroves, seagrasses, kelp forests are similar better than those ecosystems. But because the price of carbon is very low, right, we, we only value carbon at about $50 a ton in a very optimistic scenario. That's quite generous. When you start to do the multiplication, the economic value of that per hectare isn't that large. There's still a carbon potential in ecological sense, and, and that kelp can draw down this carbon, and, and that is useful as we try to mitigate CO2 emissions, but economically it might not be the most important driver. And look, I was really moved by something in your paper when you said when nature is treated as a freebie, where we can take what we want and not pay for the damages. This attitude has direct consequences. People in the environment suffer. So what's the result when people don't care about what's happening to kelp forests? We just lose the, the structure of the ocean. And with that, we lose the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the places that we love, our connection to the natural world. It is about kelp forests, but it's also about so much more than that. And I try to get that message across is that it's all connected and can start to care and protect these ecosystems as a whole. And we start to look after ourselves when we do that as well, I think. There's been a big disconnect from the environment in, in modern society. And when we try to restore a kelp forest, I think we're also starting to try to restore that connection and, and heal ourselves in a way. And that was Aaron Eager, a marine scientist from the University of New South Wales talking about the monetary value of kelp forests and much, much more. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, and we've been looking at the decline of kelp forests around the world and in Australia. And we've just heard from Aaron Egger that there has been a massive decline, 95% decline in kelp forests in Tasmania. Deborah Wace is a botanical artist, fabric designer, professional printmaker and ecological activist. She lives in Tasmania, and through her art, she endeavors to bring people's attention to the beauty of Tasmania's endangered and rare plants, including kelp and other seaweeds, and tell their stories. Deborah grew up in Canberra, so I was curious about how she came to be living in Tasmania, and it seems it had something to do with the Franklin River blockade. Tasmania, the hardest heart would understand. Just to feel your wilderness inside.
I came to Tasmania when I finished my degree at Canberra School of Art. I came down to Tasmania with a girlfriend on bicycles for a month touring around, just thinking, where am I going to live? Tasmania was um, high on my priority list because my father, he was a botanist at ANU, Dr Nigel Wace, and he had been the expert witness to the High Court case for the Franklin Dam campaign case. So he came down here and went upriver and immersed himself in the rainforest and the botany of the Franklin and the Gordon catchment areas to assess that botany for the High Court decision and was very moved by the dedication and the love for country of the protesters and by the diversity, the huge diversity of flora. So partly I wanted to see some of what he was speaking about. On a bicycle, you get to see and smell and travel slowly through the landscape and traveling around in 1988 or 87 it would have been, on a bicycle through Tasmania, there weren't as many cars on the road then. The bird song, the insects, the smells of the countryside and the forest really just made me want to know more about this. I just thought this place is so alive and so vibrant and I've been living in Tasmania ever since. And when did you start collecting plants and preserving them? I started in my childhood really because I had such an interest in form and function of plants. You know, I was much more the artist than the scientist. So as a child, I started this huge collection of shoeboxes divided and divided again and, you know, holding different sizes and shapes of gumnuts and leaves. And I loved it as a child. And when you started collecting as an adult, did some of those childhood experiences come back to you? The looking closely and the connection that that forms, the interconnection. That's part of what I love so much about it is the mirroring of form that you find in nature to yourself and realise that you're, you're an integral part of it. You're a small part. You're not the dominant species. You know, stop that. Stop trying to be the apex predator and be just at one with it. And the nourishing comfort that that provides, it's something really special and it requires you slowing down and looking really looking much closer and especially when you're looking for tiny orchids or for mosses and lichens you know you've got to go slower and when you go slower you smell you taste you hear you realize that you are part of the landscape i formed a, a large private collection of pressed plant specimens across a whole range of species, you know, leaves of trees, ferns and mosses and lichens and fungi, uh, marine algae and many of the flowers and plants that are all part of the, the forest systems, the rainforest, the, the button grass plains. It's just endlessly fascinating. I think you've been collecting these plants and pressing them. I think it's been 30 years. Yeah, yeah, more than that even. Has it changed over the 30-year period? The kelp forests, the giant kelp forests are diminishing and that's noticeable. And you can find a lot more kelp that is degraded and washed up on the shore because the habitat is actually really under threat. So, yes, you can see that when you're kayaking. You know, what you were kayaking over years ago as a kelp forest now is bare. You don't see it on the surface. I'm not out there snorkeling enough, but I do have friends that are, and they say, look, it's dire, you know, the, the whole ecosystem is changing. The giant kelp forests have now been classified as a threatened ecological community. 
because of the vast number of other species which rely upon a healthy marine ecosystem. So when you lose the structure that supports that, like the, the huge trees in the forests or the giant kelp, you're losing a community that we don't even hardly know enough about yet. When did you move from admiring the plants, collecting the plants, uh, kayaking and seeing the kelp? When did you move from that to incorporating what you're seeing in your design? I wanted to bring this work to a larger field. I wanted to produce my work onto silk and fabrics so that people would have more of an idea of the beauty and diversity of what's out there in the natural world. And I've been putting my work onto fabric for the last 10 years or more, but the newly developed digitised work at highest resolution has been going on in the last five years. What does kelp offer your designs? Like, I mean, why kelp, I guess, is what I'm asking. Oh, because it's so grand. And when you swim amongst kelp, it's so, just caresses your body. It's sort of weird. It's uh, It can be such an experience to have kelp on your skin. And I love the way that it's sort of striated. The kelp leaves look like a sandy bottom shore. You know, the ripples of sand are caught in, they're mirrored in the look of the leaf. I love the shapes. I wanted to speak about the story. It's really important to me to tell the story, to alert people and awaken people to the pressures that some of these plants are under and the contribution they make to to life on earth and to human life as well. The kelp is just one seaweed, one type of brown seaweed. There are different seaweed groups, the green seaweeds, the browns, the reds, the blue-green algaes, the sea grasses. We, we just say it rather glibly, but there's huge variation amongst these. You know, I think in Tasmania there's over 650 marine plants that have been recorded, and they're all so wildly different, and we know so little about them. There's much more research being done in ways that these seaweeds can help humanity or be useful in uh, many different ways from, you know, their fabulous nutrition ways that can be used in pharmaceuticals or in lotions. There's so many uses for seaweed. Deborah Wace. I asked Deborah to tell me more about her activism. Advocating for wild places is endless, endless. As a citizenry, we're having to do the job that government should be doing. They should be doing this. And yet, you know, thousands of us mortgage years of our lives to help protect natural places and biodiversity, just to leave it the hell alone, you know, to protect it from the predations of developers or industry resource extraction. It's not an easy task. It takes all of us in different ways with different skill sets to do that. In the early 2000s, the type locality of Research Bay was under threat from logging and roading. And our community was like we all groaned because many of us knew what a campaign entailed and that we're up for a big fight. If we weren't going to do it, then we we're just going to sit back and watch it be be roaded and logged. And, and that's an untenable situation. And then what we found out was that this was actually where the French garden was planted by the, the Don de Castro expedition in 1792 and 93. This was the type locality of first contact by the French in Tasmania, peaceful contact. And, and I stress that again, peaceful contact with the Lailaquani people. The French came here with a much more of an inquiring mind, not with a land grab ethic. Now, that may have come later, you know, who knows. 
The collections that the French made, botanical collections that Labelladiere and Félix Lahaye made, inform our current knowledge of botany. We firstly had to find the information. It was all in French. It's been a really interesting educative process for the whole community to find out what happened in this one place that had ripples and repercussions all around the world. You know, that's one place. Logging and roading are going on ad nauseum. Roading and logging are going on ad nauseum around Australia. But in this one place, it was stopped after a five-year campaign and the Tasmanian Land Conservancy now manages the landscape and protects its natural and cultural value. And the history and cultural significance of the area was important in preserving that land and saving it from logging. And it also led Deborah to apply for a Churchill Fellowship. I actually ended up winning it to go overseas to Europe to study the early French botanical record from Tasmania and bring back a body of work for fabric. And that's what I'm doing to utilise the earliest collections made that are treasured and held in herbarium collections in Florence and, and Paris and Kew Herbarium in London, many of these plants that I'm really familiar with. I just find it so fascinating how these works of art, which are botanical collections, and all the identifying botanists that have come along and ascertain what it is and the notes of the day written on the paper of the day that came from the fabric of the day, you know. All of these things make it a, a piece of art and a piece of history. Deborah Wace, botanical artist, fabric designer, professional printmaker and ecological activist. And the work that people like Deborah Wace and Aaron Eager are doing to draw community attention to the loss of kelp forests in Tasmania and around the world is so important. Scientists are looking for ways to repair the damage to the kelp, but ultimately, practices that stop the devastating impact of the warming of the planet are more urgent than ever. We're coming to the end of today's show, and it's been great to have you with us. And a big thank you to all our guests on Earth Matters today, Aaron Eager, for his scholarship on the value of kelp forests and his advocacy to save them. And to find out more about that, just go to kelpforestalliance, all one word, dot com. And you can also join the Kelp Forest Challenge. And thank you to Deborah Weiss. To find out more about her work as an activist and a plant advocate and how she incorporates kelp and other Tasmanian plants into her designs, just go to her website. All one word, DebraWace.com. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H-W-A-C-E dot com. And if you do that, you'll find out a lot more about the history of Recherche Bay in Tasmania. Earth Matters thanks the Community Radio Network for their work in broadcasting today's episode and bringing it to you, and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio Station in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted on earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environment and social justice stories. I'm Judith Peppard, signing out for this episode of Earth Matters. Thank you.